uh, address where we, where we were um, when we left off. It was such a while ago, so I'm going to have to quickly, as quickly as I can, and you know that's probably not that quick, but as quickly as I can just review what we've uh, learned about Machen, kind of his background, um, so we can get to know what this chapter on doctrine, what he was addressing, okay? Um, because we, if we don't know the context, I, I know I've gotten feedback from a lot of people, they get easily lost in this book because there's a, there's a context to the book and it goes back hundreds of years, in my opinion. And so I'm going to pass out a couple of sheets here. This is, um, I took, uh, I printed this from a, a book uh, written by Herman Bavink. If, if you've never heard of Herman Bavink, he was a um, Dutch Reformed theologian, uh, very popular among the uh, Reformed churches. Um, he would have subscribed to the Three Forms of Unity, which is uh, Heidelberg, Belgic, and um, slip me, uh, one more. Uh, the Canada Door. Did you want to? And uh, I got another one from her. Holly, would you mind passing this one out? Just so we can get things moving. Thank you. And also, so basically, in, in that sheet that you have there, and I'm going to pass out these sheets progressively. Because I, I want to address a lot of the questions people had, kind of confusion. Uh, and we want to get into a little bit of detail here. Because to clarify where I'm going with this. And what my, what my conclusions were in studying Machen. Studying Presbyterianism. Because when we uh, consider Machen in this book... Over the summer, we, we wanted to situate Machen historically, where he was in history, the, the time, it was, you know, Industrial Revolution, you had uh, the League of Nations being formed, he opposed all these things, so we wanted to establish him uh, politically, uh, we established him as a, a libertarian, which means he was uh, conservative when it came to government, he didn't like big government, not a fan of tyrants. But at the same time, he was a social liberal. This means he expected the world to be pluralistic. He expected believers and unbelievers to live together in the world. Um, but that's not how we viewed the church. The, the church is not a pluralistic place. right? It must be founded on uh, the word and reflected in our confessions and catechisms. So we... we um, we situated Machen, so we situated him historically, politically, and theologically. Um, he was a Presbyterian. And we see this reflected in the book, even though he's not quoting the confessions, even though he's not uh, uh, deliberately going, going out of his way to talk about church government, like I did this morning. Um, but he has a chapter on what? The final chapter is the church. In in uh, more broader evangelicalism, the church is not that important. But for Machen, it was of utmost importance. 
as we confessed this morning in chapter 25, section 2, there is no ordinary way of salvation outside the church. Ordinary. We're not saying it's the only way. Of, we're saying the ordinary way people are saved is within the church. Okay. Uh, so it was of utmost important, importance for Machen. And not only that, but doctrine as well. Um, doctrine as well. And what was happening in the Presbyterian church was you had, like I said before in another lesson, you had three major groups. I wouldn't even call them major. There's really one major group with two outliers, two, two groups on the side. You had liberals on one side. You had the really conservative um, Presbyterians on one side who were confessional. They, they, they um, uh, confessed the faith according to our doctrinal standards and they had a, a strict view of the Bible. That would include us, right? And then you had in the middle, the, you know, kind of the, the bigger group. The, these were the moderates. Okay. The moderates were those who started off conservative maybe in their teaching. They may even teach conservatively uh, and preach it. But they wanted to give voice to the liberal in the church and in the academy, in the seminaries. And so they opened up that door, like we can have a dialogue and still ordain people who have some liberal views. They're not really denying the virgin birth, but they're not confessing it, that kind of thing, that kind of mentality. Uh, uh, and that eventually led Machen to form the Independent Board of Missions because they were sending missionaries who couldn't profess that Jesus was born of, the, of a virgin. Okay. So there's this mentality that if we compromise on doctrine, we'll have a greater impact in the culture. Think of Princeton. Right? Princeton is a big name for American culture. It's always been since, they're, since they began. Um, and at that time, there was science. Evolution was making a big Big deal in the culture. Uh, it's being taught in schools. And it's having an impact. And the, the problem... I don't know if she's putting up the microphone. Sorry. Do you need to hear us? You want to hear us? You can? Are you sure? I can go up there. Okay, okay. Um, guess I'm that loud, huh? I, I don't notice it myself. Um, <clears throat> And so there was this move, and I'm going to be repetitive because I have it in my notes. I'm going to say it again. But there was this move to, to influence the culture was more important than, than sticking to the doctrine. That's what happened. So in the time of Machen, liberals were not in the majority. They are now. But they weren't back then. Uh, the majority were kind of easygoing conservative Christians who wanted to see a Christian society. And the only way they could see a Christian society is if, <clears throat> is if they compromised. Um, and Machen was like, no, forget the society. This society is going to come and go. What we need to do is stick to doctrine. And this is where this leads me. And, I, and, and I, um, this shift in um, practice, they would call it piety, right? Piety versus doctrine, this shift to that, went, went back in history to what we call pietism. 
and I handed out a couple of sheets there that you can kind of pinpoint pietism. Um, pietism goes back to the 16th, 17th, well, I would say more of the 17th century, so 1600s. Um, and you can say that the Puritans had, a, had an influence on the early pietists. So a lot of people trace, like Herman Bavink here, he traces pietism to the Puritans, though I would make a big difference between the Puritans and the pietists with that the Puritans always led you back to hearing of the word, partaking of the sacraments, and prayer. Right? These were the means that God has given us to um, heal our burdened conscience if we, if we you know, lack assurance, for instance. Um, uh, we, we, we feel as if you know, we don't see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. They would always bring us back to the means that God has given us to reassure us, to comfort us, and to, to cause us to walk in his ways. Um, versus the pietist was a little different. The pietist would go into dangerous introspection where you constantly had to examine yourself to prove yourself and never really get to Christ. It's always, within, it's always your spiritual experience. Uh, I try to defi- define pietism as, as a um, uh, piety at the expense of doctrine. Piety at the expense of doctrine. But piety and doctrine for the Reformed go together. <clears throat> we are to have a warm piety. We do have spiritual experiences. I'm not saying we don't. But it must be coupled with and grounded in doctrine. Okay? Um, and so the pietists began, and the pietists began you know, teaching these kinds of things. And I traced it back to a man called uh, Theodorus Freligason, and he was the major influence on the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening. Okay. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, and the like. And the thing that I'm hoping through the preaching you'll begin to see is that the Bible does not describe a born-again experience. It says you must be born again, yes. Some, some people cry, some people don't at their uh, conversion. And there's no uh, wooden program or example that we can say that this is how every conversion experience is. None. You, you can't find it. Uh, you would have to overemphasize one person's experience over others. Paul versus Isaac, for instance. Paul had a different experience than Isaac. So the experience itself does not define uh, being born again. <clears throat> and I'll go, I'll go to Jesus, actually. And what he said in John, in John 3, the famous you know, born-again um, passage... In verse 8, specifically when he talks about the work of the Spirit, he says this, in converting someone. It says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So to define and nail down the born-again experience and the steps that it happens 
would contradict what Jesus said here. He says, you don't know how it happens. One day you have life, the next day you don't. Uh, one day you don't have life, sorry. The next day you don't. Uh, you do. Don't do. Okay, getting that down. One day you don't have life, the next day you do. Sometimes you don't, you don't even realize it. One day you're believing one thing, the next day you're not, and you're saying Jesus is Lord. There's no uh, process given. Some people there's a process, others there's not. Um, and, and nothing is really nailed down as law, right? And what the pietist has done, he has made it law. That's what he has done. And, and we see this uh, example, exemplified in the First Great Awakening. I know the First Great Awakening is the golden calf for many Reformed people. Uh, and they don't like to hear it critiqued. But there were a m- lot of problems with it. A lot of problems with it. And we'll get there. Uh, another way we see, we see evidence of someone who was born again is the renewal of the mind. More times than not, we see in the scripture... Uh, someone who was born again is thinking differently, and so he lives differently, and he's bearing fruits of the Spirit. Um, but even that can be very, very small in the beginning. Um, and I always ask, you know, um, I ask myself, those who put emphasis on a born-again experience, this, you hear of an overwhelming sense of freedom and joy, I, I, I always go back to Job. What about Job? Was he not converted that whole time he was in misery? So we must be careful. We have people among us who are probably going through misery who are Christians. Who don't feel that joy, that overwhelming sense of joy. Um, And I I know this even uh, contradicts with even Pilgrim's Progress with John Bunyan. But John Bunyan was sure... To say that not every Christian goes through this process in the Pilgrim's Progress. He's like, this is, this is what I went through. That doesn't mean every Christian is going to go through the same thing. So we must qualify these experiences that we see. And I, um, that we hear of from the First Great Awakening. So I came to the conclusion that the First Great Awakening was a proto-liberal movement. They weren't liberal themselves. The leaders weren't liberal themselves. But they opened the doors for it. They were the first to say, hey, doctrine, that's great and all, but don't be dogmatic. It's your personal experience that really matters. Have you sensed this overwhelming conversion experience? That's why in the early uh, American church, you had the Presbyterian and the Congregationalist church, they were trying to unite, and you had the uh, halfway covenant where... Uh, they would receive uh, uh, people based on their conversion experience. Um, that, that's not what the halfway covenant was in itself. But, but part of their membership um, interviews, you had to get a, give a credible conversion experience. Not a cre- credible profession of faith. That's, that's how we do it. But they had to give a credible conversion experience. Did you have so much terror of the law? If not, come back another day. Okay? I always relate it to um, kids. You have different kinds of kids, right? You all, most of you have had kids. And one kid, 
you know, they get a prick of conscience. You know, they, you give them a look and they're like, oh, okay, yep, I'm going to go this way. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rethink what I'm, oh, I was about to do. And they'll, they'll just obey, right? Um, and then you have the kid that you really need to scare for them to do anything, right? I think everyone has one of these. You might be one. Um, and those, you know, those are those who sense that terror of the Lord because God had to wake them up to say, listen, you're condemned. You're going to die if you keep going this way. And the other guy, all he needed was a little, oh, okay, yep. I'm going to turn to Jesus. I'll trust in him. Yep, you don't have to tell me twice, right? That kind of thing. So, and that's, that's how I see uh, so-called conversion experiences. They're different. One group to another. And so, um, I, I rooted the liberal movement going back to the first great awakening. And I, I will try to, I'm going to hand out reasons why. Um, there's this article here, why caution about Jonathan Edwards is in order. Jonathan Edwards is probably the most important theologian in America, most popular, uh, probably one of the most educated, um, and one of the most influential. But like he says here, uh, influence, however, does not necessarily equate with orthodoxy or edification. Right? Just because someone is influential and big-named doesn't mean you should follow them in everything. I'm sure there's a lot of great work he has done, but there is caution as well. So I'm going to hand out this one. This I'm not going to go over today. Um, we will. Oh, you want to take it? Thank you. Um, we will cover it when we get to the uh, first great awakening in our church history uh, course. And so this next uh, handout I'm going to give is. I'm missing something. Sorry, my child messed up the papers here. So I gotta... Oh, here. I blamed her. It was my fault, actually. Did you want it? Thank you. Um, <clears throat> and now I'm giving you, finally, I'm giving you the handout to what we're talking about here. And, and just going back to some helpful information, when the First Great Awakening was happening, the Presbyterians isolated um, the, the, the tenant brothers and what they were uh, doing, they were really troubling um, a lot of the ministers. Because one of the major issues with the First Great Awakening was something we were just talking about today. They were usurping church authority. They did not want to rigorously examine ministers and make sure that, that they were educated and they had seminary degrees. That's why they founded the Log College. Notice college versus seminary. They wanted something easier for the ministers so we can get pump out more gospel ministers. It, it was all, all pragmatism. They wanted more numbers. So they wanted to pump out um, uh, gospel preachers. And if you go back in history and actually look at the stats, the Great Awakening did not did not increase the numbers of church members. It actually declined. Specifically the Presbyterian church. Maybe you had an, uh, uh, an increase in other churches, but for the Presbyterian church, there was a decline. By the 1790s, there were more people, percentage-wise, attending church today than there was back then. For the Presbyterian church. Now, I'm not, I don't know all the numbers for 
every other church. So that would bring us to a percentage of maybe less, less than 20%. And that's, that's pretty bad. Okay. Um, so, like I said, uh, I believe the um, First Great Awakening was a proto-liberal movement. Um, and the, the Presbytery New Brunswick was their presbytery. And, like I said, it's the same presbytery that disciplined Machen later on. This, like, 100 plus years later. So that mentality carried on. Even though we reunited, thank the Lord, between the side that was, that was against the Great Awakening and those who were for it, we reunited. But that mentality remained, I believe, where doctrine doesn't matter that much. What matters is love or you know, just preach the gospel. You know, lay people can preach the gospel too. Um, they should be allowed. You know, that kind of mentality. Um, and so, when you get to Machen, you have a different kind of fighter. Because um, his fight was a little different than those of the fundamentalists. Um, so, you, Machen ended up fighting everybody in the church. So... He was a fighter. He fought the liberal. He fought the, fought the moderate. And later, after Christianity and liberalism was written, he fought the fundamentalist. This is uh, the Christian who had a low view of the church, but a high view of societal change. So their purpose, they believe, for the church was to change the laws to, to make it all Christian. So they try to get rid of alcohol. They try to get rid of theater. They try to get rid of dance making all these things illegal. Uh, th this, this describes kind of the fundamentalists. You still have fundamentalists today. Uh, for the most part, broadly evangelicals are close to lawlessness now than they are to, uh, to actually caring about the laws, uh, unless it's a law that suits them, right? It's rather sad. Um, it's like Daryl Hart has said, you know, a, a lot of people want the blue laws back. They want, they want <laughs> um, everything to close on Sunday, Right to, to observe the Sabbath. But I'll agree to that when I see more of them in church. Right? Because most of them are not in church on Sunday. So what's the point of that law if you're, you yourself are contradicting it uh, out of conviction? So uh, anyway. So again, to give background, um, we're going to jump right into it. And just so you know, on the papers on pietism and Methodism, I've underlined those things that were important out of the... So you're not reading this and your head is spinning, right? I underline those things that were important, those things that will summarize what I mean by pietism, okay? Uh, there were a couple of movements. You had neonomianism, which believed that faith and obedience was a condition for justification. But the pietist believed that faith and experience... That was the condition for justification rather than just faith alone. Okay. You had to have this experience. And they opposed all scholasticism, that is, any type of study, you, you know, that, that comes to a definite doctrine to say, yes, this is where we land. Like this morning, uh, we're Presbyterian because we're, it, it, we believe it's biblical. That's after much study and saying, yes, this is where we're going to land. And to say that we believe the other forms are wrong. The, the pietists didn't really care for this kind of 
um, uh, discussion. It wasn't the knowledge of things, but practice and consistent application that was important. It was the doctrine of living for God, the pursuit of piety that was more important than doctrine. You see, that, that, that's weird because we believe that too, but the foundation of it is doctrine. That's the foundation of all of our piety. If we don't have the sound doctrine as the foundation, forget the piety. It's not going to flow. Um, and he says here, being born of believing parents, membership in the church, baptism, communion, and orthodox faith, all these things are not enough for the pietist. They're not enough. Okay? But it, true faith does not arise except when terror before the law, fear of judgment, and anguish over sin have preceded it. I've said, I've met people who are converted, who are genuinely converted, who are complete Stoics. I mean, it's like one beat to another. Yeah, I believe. And they live it. And what am I to say to that? Am I to govern the work of the Spirit? No. I can't, I can't govern that. All we can do is judge based as ministers, profession of faith, and lifestyle. Right. Um, so, uh, trust. They, they put trust against knowledge. Not knowing that trust involves knowledge. You have to have a certain degree of knowledge to trust. Um, the seat is more in the heart, right? This, the seat of this um, faith, more in the heart and the will than in the head. So they put the two against each other, heart and head. You know, it's all about the heart, not the head. Forget the head. No, the way to the heart is the head. <coughs> Some people say it's the stomach. Yeah, but, but, yeah. uh, but anyway, <clears throat> So that faith has refuge taking, consisting in hungering and thirsting after Christ and His righteousness is a condition that precedes justification. What's wrong with that? Can anybody tell me what's wrong with putting a condition before someone comes to faith? Because it's God who saves. That's right. And if you have a thirst after righteousness and of thirsting after Christ, that's evidence. That's evidence of faith. It doesn't precede it. It's not a condition that you need to meet. Okay? That's the problem with pietism. Uh, This is what formed the anxious bench. The anxious bench were for those who felt the terror and they desiring Christ, but they have not yet come to faith. It's like, What? Conviction of sin and the thirsting after righteousness are both evidence that you have faith. If you have a conviction of sin, that you have sinned against God, not, not just you did something wrong and you're going to face, you know, you're going to go to prison or something. Not that. But you have a conviction that you actually sinned against God. That's evidence that you're a Christian. It doesn't precede being a Christian. We must be careful. We need to make those distinctions. Um, and so the law, they, they describe the law as being for all, but the gospel is only for certain qualified sinners. The guy on the anxious bench that finally comes to quote-unquote faith that the minister is happy with, whatever those conditions are, that's when you assure him of his salvation. You don't do it before that. Because, you know, you got to let that terror of the law sink in. you got to let that thirsting for Christ reach 
a, a climax, and then finally you can say, okay, my son, you are one of us. You have faith. <clears throat> that is not what we do in the church. Not what we do. That is, that is abuse, borderline. Right? So, um, there's all, only a very, to them, to, to the pietists, there's only a very fine line of distinction between regenerates at their worst and unregenerates at their best. Okay? Again, that's another problem. Um, there's so much similarity between false and true grace. Sometimes you see this in Puritan writings too. But thankfully, hope, and hopefully you read to the end and you don't just stay there. Because after reading any of them, you'll probably come to the conclusion, I am not saved. Um, <clears throat> I am not a believer. Um, but for the pietists, believers must therefore always re-examine and test themselves by the marks of a truly spiritual life. The way of salvation is a narrow way by which even the righteous can scarcely be saved. Um, and there are different, he puts, he puts uh, the pietist puts people in different groups. The discovered, the persuaded, the concerned, the hungry for salvation, people of little or weak faith and others. And mind you, all of these are, are unsaved to them. They're not saved. So the one that hungers for, for salvation is not saved. I'm like, that, that contradicts scripture. That contradicts what Jesus was speaking about in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was not for the world. The Sermon on the Mount was addressed to his disciples, believers. Okay? Um, so the experience of being sealed and assured only follows after a long period of inner doubt and conflict, and then frequently in an extraordinary manner. Um, hence why I passed out the sheet on... I'm probably just going to cover this today, just so you know. I'm already running out of time. But I'm not even going to get into the chapter, which is fine. It forms the background. Okay, so this is fine. Um, so I passed out this, um, this sheet on Edwards, and I, I believe there's, there's an account where his wife, or I don't want to get it wrong, because I don't want to misrepresent anything, but somebody levitated from the ground during their conversion experience. I'm like, whoa, that, that sounds more demonic than it does actual Holy Spirit conversion. You know, so we need to be careful that a lot of things happened that scholars do not talk about because you know, it may hurt publishing, it may hurt you know, selling books, but they don't talk about these things regarding the first great awakening that we need to be careful of and not follow. Okay? And a lot of it is summarized in, in what uh, our Scott Clark wrote in that article back in 2020. Um, and on the second sheet, uh, I'm not sure how many of you have, uh, Lydia, did you get both copies? I was just looking, I don't, I don't think so. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I know you can. Five, what page numbers? Okay, I'll give you this one. And like I said, I underline the stuff that, you know, I don't want to send people away with their heads spinning. And if you have any questions along the way to clarify anything, please chime in. Uh, yes, Linda. Well, I got a couple. Um, one of them, uh, you know, I listened a few years ago to Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and I'm wow. But mm -hmm. I, I understand now, in context, it was almost like trying to scare people so they would tremble. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it, it's, yeah. 
It's scare tactics, basically. I, I mean, am I right? Yeah. I'm kind of yeah. on the right track? Well, you, you would have to answer the question, was the gospel in that message? You would have to go back, read it. Did he, did he bring the gospel to bear on the, or, or was he just preaching the law? I mean, uh, I mean, if you would have to answer that for yourself. Read, read the sermon again and say, is Christ here? Is he preaching Christ? Um, that's how I, I would answer that. And from my reading, uh, I didn't read it in detail, so I, I'm, I'm not going to say I know everything there is to know about him and what he wrote, but I didn't see much there. Well, it's almost like he's setting the stage for the anxious, whatever you call it. Yeah. He's setting the stage for yeah. the anxious. What was that? <clears throat> anxious bench. That would come after, after Edwards, a little after Edwards. Um, but taking, they, they got it from him, the, the idea, kind of the um, direction that it led to. Another, you have another question? What yep. about, um, you know, pray this prayer. You know, you listen to the evangelist, and mm-hmm. you know, at the end it's pray this prayer and you'll be saved. Hmm. Yeah. Um, how does that fit into what we're, because you still see that. that. That comes from the second great awakening. So it, you got the first, it was a little snowball, right? And as I say, that snowball got bigger once you got close to 100 years later, the Second Great Awakening. Um, and yeah, that's, that's where that comes from. And, um, and it's rooted in pietism. All, bo- both of these movements are rooted in the same, mo- same movement of pietism. Okay. And then one more, mm-hmm. when you started out talking about... Um, Machen and the Independent Mission Board. Yeah. Where does that fit in with the timeline? Uh, was okay. he still in Princeton and mm-hmm. he, he was still, yeah. and that was a seminary for Presbyterian ministers, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so he was still in that and he formed that because the regular mission board was sending out the wrong kind of doctrine. Yes, yep, that was during Princeton. Okay. Um, that's what he would be disciplined for. Um, because he, you know, we must, you heard the sermon this morning, and we're all Presbyterian, right? We, we have our form of government, we follow it, but it must be rooted in doctrine. Okay, the problem in that time, Machen saw they weren't. And the Presbyterian church, so, so we're not foolproof, right? Our system is not foolproof. All of the OPC can become corrupt. If, if everyone begins to have the same mentality. Um, so there is a chance for that. So I'm not saying the Presbyterian system is going to be perfect. We see it in the scriptures and, and we, we have it because we believe that's the system that the Lord laid down for us. But it doesn't mean you're not going to have issues with it. And Machen saw the issues and he started uh, Presbyterian, starting an independent board, right? The word independent is like a curse word for us. <laughs> uh, uh, being independent apart from Presbyterian apart from um, the seminary. But the problem was so pervasive that he had, he had no choice. And it wasn't just him. So there were other men involved. So you can say he was still Presbyterian just on a smaller scale. Uh, there were other men who followed him. Very small amount, but they did. Uh, thankfully, you wouldn't, we wouldn't have our church today if we didn't. Sure. Yes. If someone, would it be wrong to say 
if someone was so moved during the service to think that they had were experiencing the Holy Spirit calling them, would it be wrong to say you could use this prayer versus you think the Lord would provide them with yeah. what to say? Yeah, yeah, I think that's okay. I mean, that they, would be totally different yeah. than saying, pray this, and, and you'll be saved. Say, yeah. That's but different. If you were so moved, mm-hmm. these words would be appropriate, as opposed to, I don't know, with the Lord. In some cases, I guess the Lord would just instruct them or tell them no. Yeah, or, or even by their thoughts, yeah. the Lord would know. Yep. Or, or I can say at the end of the sermon, pray with me. Yes. Pray as I pray. Um, and yeah, uh, I, you know, <clears throat> again, like what you're trying to avoid is exactly what I would try to avoid too, is that we don't go pietistic the other direction too, where you know written prayers by someone else cannot be adopted to yourself, right? As your own prayer, I have nothing wrong with written prayers and praying the prayers of others from the ancient church, for instance, who wrote their prayers down, praying it and applying it to yourself if you mean it, right? If that if you can apply it to yourself, yeah, that's that's fine. Um, See, the kids are already up. Um, but, yeah, but, but to say, pray this prayer and you'll be saved. No, it's the saved that will pray the prayer. Right. Um, so, good distinction. Thank you, Wayne. Yeah. What was the reason the numbers declined? Why? You said the numbers declined. This was the Great mm-hmm. Awakening. Uh, yeah. For all the time you're talking about the Ten mm-hmm. Brothers. But the numbers declined. You'd expect, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this great preaching... Mm-hmm. Where, what, why, and where did those people go? Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to rely on some scholars here. Um, cause, uh, you know, I'm not <clears throat> exhaustive in my knowledge. I don't know everything. But according to Daryl Hart, Daryl Hart and a few others, there was, as I spoke about the shift, so this, there was a shift. The shift went from I have it here. Doctrine, experience, to liberalism. That, I mean, if you want to go through uh, the history of the Presbyterian Church in America, doctrine, experience, liberalism. That's, that's how I form it. And this was during the shift. Um, and during that shift, there was a shift of uh, emphasis on doctrine, right? The church is here for redemptive purposes and means to experience which was coupled with activism social activism so there was an activist um, mentality behind many of those who were preaching during the great awakening that if you really want to see you need to go out and do this you need to go and do this you need to get rid of this get rid of that and build this kingdom on earth the kingdom of God on earth so Social activism was was all those, and even back in the 1700s. I mean, even though Presbyterians, even sound old side Presbyterians, supported the Revolutionary War, but it's no surprise that that the new side also supported it. You know, um, because they they had this shift from doctrine to activism, which is right underneath the experience category. And individualism. Notice, American Christians, no importance for the church. There's no importance for the church. It's me, Jesus, and my Bible. That's all I need. My at-home Bible study, I can study my Bible at home. I can worship at home. 
Uh, we're going through the book, uh, What Happens When We Worship. Beneficial. Because it goes to show in the Bible, there's no such thing as an individual Christian. But the first great awakening gave birth to that. The individualistic Christian. That he is really active in society, but cares nothing for the church. The church and the gathering is not that important. Hearing God's word, partaking of the sacraments and prayer, not that important. What's important is individual experience, individual activism, making sure that you're doing your part in society. Those things are good. I mean, I tell Christians, you should be uh, 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 involved in society. We're We're not hermits. We're not monks. We're not... The Amish, right? We, we want to contribute to society in whatever uh, field we've been called to, but not at the expense of the church. That's the primary place we gather for worship, right? We can't do it apart from what God has provided. Um, that is rather unbiblical. We don't see that in the scriptures at all. Um, and so hopefully that answers your question. Yes. So the shift, there's a shift from doctrine um, and being in the church to activism, being individualists. And this is where we get um, this rank individualism today of Americans. Don't bother me. Don't tell me about God. Just leave me alone. Uh, I mind my business. You mind yours. That's the golden rule. Even though that's not the golden rule. But that's the golden rule. And, you know, leave me alone. Don't tell me what to do. There's no authority in the church. It's just me and Jesus. Jesus is my head. That's all I need. Um, But in the Bible, he's the head of the house of God, the gathering of the people, not just one individual. So that's that's important to make that distinction. Well, we've come to the end. Any other questions, comments? I will pick up where I left off. I had a feeling this was going to happen, but that's okay. We we I think we a lot of people needed to refresh and um, get back into why we're covering this, especially today. Okay. Um, and we'll get into, uh, I don't even know if I'll go over this next sheet because I, I think I got into a little bit. Pietism leads to kind of a monkish life, right? Where we're not involved in society anymore. Uh, and there's no more neutral ground between the believer and unbeliever. It's, you know, you got to make everything Christian or you just escape from society, right? Those are the two options for the pietist. While the Christian has always been involved in society, and he places a priority on the ordinary means of grace in the church. Okay? So read that on your own, the second sheet. And next time, next week, I believe, I'm just going to get right into it. I'm just getting right into the chapter. I promise. I promise. Okay. Let's, uh, uh, Wayne, would you mind praying?